by Audrey Lord, Audrey Lord Papers, Spelman College Archive. Introduction. A. Harris Dixon and Leah Lakshmi P. Epsna Samarasina. How and why we came to this project. Leah, it was 2014, 2015, 2016. The revolution starts at home, confronting intimate violence in activist communities, the zine I co-edited with fellow activist writers Chingan Chen and Jai Dulani that turned into a magazine, and then turned into a book published by the longtime, much-lamented independent feminist of color South End Press, was back in print after South End went bust. I got messages, via email, Instagram, and OkCupid okay DMs, from strangers and acquaintances on the street or at a queer of color performance night, thanking us for creating such a resource. I was glad it was working for them. But I was also increasingly, flummoxed. We had come up with the idea for The Revolution Starts at Home in 2004. The zine first came out in 2008, the book came out in 2011. 12, 13, 14 years later, perhaps 20 years since feminists of color most recently started talking about ways to deal with abuse and violence outside of the state or traditional anti-violence non-profit structures, it was still the only book out there for people who were like, something is happening and I don't want to call the cops, or can't, what do I do? And in those 20 years, the world has changed. We still live in a brutal white supremacist settler ableist cis-sexist state. But 20 years ago, when my non-binary of color, already been to jail lover put me in a chokehold and I couldn't call the cops without being deported and risking them killing me, nobody, nobody was talking about how to address violence without the state. It felt hard enough to get other young black, indigenous, people of color, BIPOC, I was in movement organizing with to believe that yes, abuse happens here, and it's real and not justified by oppression. Then, for the years that followed, getting other anti-violence workers at the crisis line where I worked to imagine non-state approaches to partner abuse and sexual assault seemed like crazy talk. Getting any of this into the mainstream media was a wild dream. When we published The Revolution Starts at Home, our editor told us not to put transformative justice to in the title because no one would know what it meant. But 20 years later, all those hundreds of workshops, attempted accountability processes, late-night conversations, rallies, action camps, huge heated Facebook fights, minazines about consent handed out in the club, rallies held after murders, community databases and safe neighborhood maps, safer relationship classes, and safety team trainings have paid off. The world is still messed up but it is also different. In my experience, the years from 2010 to 2012 were a tough time for transformative justice, TJ. I was bitter and so were a lot of people I knew. They had tried TJ and it hadn't worked, or it had been a huge disaster, or it left them with more questions than answers. Some people got into vigilantism, or talked about it anyway, because, hey, beating the shit out of someone has an impact you can see. Projects burnt out and long-time organizers took long breaks from TJ work that often became permanent. But at the same time we witnessed a rise in both reporting and activism around police and ICE violence and around stranger murders of BIPOC, especially black and brown trans women, disabled people, and sex workers. With the rise of Black Lives Matter, the movement for Black Lives, Idle No More, and organizing led by immigrant, Latinx, and other people of color to stop police and immigration violence, more and more people seemed to believe that prisons and police were socially destructive and unnecessary. I felt a turning point when I picked up a copy of Rolling Stone in 2014 and saw their article, Policing is a Dirty Job, But Nobody's Gotta Do It, Six Ideas for a Cop-Free World.
Three fifteen years after my partner put me in a chokehold and my comrades had no idea what to do, those wingnut ideas were now highlighted in a mainstream, national magazine. A. Harris, I'm not a writer. So when Leah approached me to co-edit this book, I thought it was a joke and I turned her down. She asked again, in fact, I think she asked three times, and I eventually gave a fearful yes. Looking back, I'm grateful I said yes, grateful to co-shape this project. And while writing is not my thing, I do know violence, living through my own experiences of survival, supporting hundreds of survivors, creating organizing strategies on police violence, sexual violence, intimate partner violence, and hate violence, and crafting anti-violence curricula and policy. From 2005 to 2013 I worked on violence almost every single day for 10 to 12 hours a day. And since 2013 I seem to work on violence every other day. I've worked on more murders than I can count, attended more funerals than birthdays, and have a drawer where I keep the endless stock of cards for grieving parents, partners, and chosen family. I would write, I'm sorry you've lost your loved one. I'm a member of underscore organization. You're going to meet a lot of people in the next few weeks. I'm here to help and to promise that I'm someone that you can rely on. I didn't know if I had something to contribute to a book, but I knew that I had something to contribute to the story of the transformative justice movement. Within my time connected to this movement, transformative justice and community accountability strategies have become dramatically more visible. I want to make sure that we captured stories that aren't always as visible. There have been conversations, arguments, and even declarations of what and who is or isn't transformative enough. I want to ensure that we highlighted the breadth of the work and varying types of transformative justice. I want to make certain that we let TJ be free, that we don't judge TJ, put TJ into boxes, or constrain TJ just because she became a popular kid. And I want people to know that for so many of us TJ is already in us, in our families and lived experiences, and is something that we just call life. Why this book? So many people experiencing violence or other emergencies don't want to call the police, or in some cases understand that they should not, but have no idea of what to do instead. In the years leading up to our decision to co-edit this book, both of us witnessed many conversations where people would complain that there were no resources to explain how transformative justice or community accountability works. Both of us knew that there were resources, but you need to know where to look to find them. Accessing so many of the resources that we knew about required knowing who to ask, what workshops to take, where and when they were happening, and what terms to Google, and if you were outside a particular generation or movement context, knowing all that didn't come easy. Organizations don't always stay around and are often under-resourced, so if you don't know where to look, you may find only the remnants. At the same time, there's been an upswing in the past five years of writing about transformative justice that sings its praises and talks about what a wonderful thing it is but is short on the specifics of how exactly you do it. This project began because we wanted to offer a resource that could help explain not why but how to do transformative justice. In the recent upsurge of popular discussion of abolition and transformative justice, a number of essays and think pieces have eloquently addressed the whys of TJ, the violence of prisons and the fact that prisons and policing do not increase safety for survivors of violence who are black, brown, queer, trans, broke, immigrant, disabled, or sex working. They explain, mostly for people who don't have these experiences, that contact with the cops can end in our deaths but they don't talk about the nitty-gritty work needed to create an alternative to policing. In working on this book, we wanted to open up the definition of TJ. 
Many people have told us that when they think of transformative justice, they think it is a really long process where people talk about what happened, cry, get overwhelmed, and eventually stop answering their emails. While processes are important, and we've included stories of some that, miraculously, worked. We also wanted to fill in some of the million different ways not 911 can look. So this book includes disabled made toolkits for supporting people who are experiencing emotional crises without calling the cops, trans lifeline story of running a national crisis line by and for trans people that, unlike every other suicide prevention hotline, never calls 911 without an explicit request, Oakland Power Project's deep dive into how black and brown people in Oakland deal with medical crises and overdoses, Audrey Lord Project's detailed toolkit for creating safer club and party spaces without police and Audrey Huntley's descriptions of how she and other indigenous women and two-spirit people led successful murder investigations into the deaths of indigenous women when the cops failed to act, using ceremony and the, the skill of just talking to people. Addressing violence while not engaging with police, prisons, and courts is a beautiful task that can also feel totally overwhelming. These pieces show some of the many ways people can dive in. Theory without practice can be irresponsible and it can drive people who need immediate solutions away from the support they need. We want to show the messy, beautiful, and unromanticized aspects of this movement. We want to highlight the stories and strategies of everyone who tried something just because they had to, because no one else was going to, because, like us, they didn't know if they would survive. We also want to provide space for reflecting on how far we have come and where we are as a movement. Whenever TJ organizers get together, we start telling the truly wild stories of all the shit we've seen, like the times a fight broke out during a process, the times we tried to figure out whether there is a TJ strategy for murder, or the times we raised funds and provided food, offered shelter, and paid medical bills for someone because we weren't sure what else to do. This book includes interviews with some people who have been doing this work a really long time, and their reflections help us to see how far we have come. We lift up the memories of organizations and projects such as Sista 2 Sista, Challenging Male Supremacy Project, Young Women's Empowerment Project, Support New York, Philly Stands Up, The Storytelling and Organizing Project, STOP, Chrysalis Collective, Community Against Rape and Abuse, CARA, and others, many of whom are now fading from collective consciousness and whose thousands of hours of often unpaid labor are the reason we are here. Recognizing that people sometimes talk about TJ as if it were an easy, wonderful, utopian thing. We've included frank stories of the real deal, the messy parts, the hard work, and how people are finding ways to do it anyway. We hope these stories inspire and encourage you. We hope this book gives you practical knowledge for deepening your own TJ practice, reminds you of strategies you may have already tried, and invites you to learn from those experiences as well as our own. Finally, because the origin stories of books are often shrouded in mystery, we feel it's important to note that we co-created this book waiting at gates for planes to take off, shouting messages to each other using voice-to-text on our phones, sitting through three-hour Zoom calls filled with the everyday hilarity of our lives, writing at three in the morning when we couldn't sleep, and surviving crises that nearly led to nervous breakdowns as we navigated the intensities of this world in our bodies and communities. This book grew from the soil of a black and brown queer feminist friendship and comradeship, grounded in mutual respect, honesty, and care. It was not co-created from an ivory tower or a place of protected privilege. We want you to know that you can write your own book, too, at the kitchen table and in the waiting room, or sitting on the floor of gate 38C with your phone plugged into the wall. 
You don't have to wait for permission or to be a real writer to do it. You can just move with intention and offer the world the brilliant tools you and your communities have crafted from hustle and brilliance. In our work of making the world that is coming, where prisons and police are a memory and we have many ways of preventing and addressing harm as human beings, we need nothing less. 2. We had a long discussion about whether or not to capitalize transformative justice, TJ, throughout the book, and we decided on lower case for a few reasons. We want TJ to be an accessible practice that everyday people can use. We don't want to contribute to the formalization of TJ. We also want the work to be seen as real and valid, and we want the movement work to be respected. Whether to capitalize the term depends on your context, and we wanted to explain our intent here. 3. Jose Martin, Policing is a dirty job, but nobody's gotta do it. 6. Ideas for a cop-free world, Rolling Stone, December 16, 2014. Part 1, Making the Road by Dreaming Stories of Accountability 1. Building Community Safety Practical Steps Toward Liberatory Transformation A. Harris Dixon Mom, when you were growing up, did you ever call the police? I can't remember any time that we did. What did you do if something violent happened? It depended on the situation. Often, we could send for the uncles, brothers, fathers, or other family members of people involved to interrupt violence. However, there was this time when we had this family that lived on our block, where the husband was attacking his wife. And people were fed up, so some men in the community withstanding, a minister, teacher, doctor, and others, decided to intervene. Those men stopped by the house to let the husband know that they wouldn't tolerate his behavior and it needed to stop. My mom grew up in New Orleans in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. Her entire life was marked by experiences of state violence and Jim Crow segregation. The police, white citizens' councils, and the Klan intermingled to form the backbone of a racist political and economic system. Her experiences were not unique. Historically and currently most marginalized communities, including black people, poor people, queer and trans people, and people with disabilities, have experienced violence and discrimination from police, emergency services, and the legal system. Just as the use of state violence against black communities is not new, neither are the ideas of transformative justice or community accountability. Transformative justice and community accountability are terms that describe ways to address violence without relying on police or prisons. These approaches often work to prevent violence, to intervene when harm is occurring, to hold people accountable, and to transform individuals and society to build safer communities. These strategies are some of the only options that marginalized communities have to address harm. The work of transformative justice can happen in a variety of ways. Some groups support survivors by helping them identify their needs and boundaries while ensuring their attackers agree to these boundaries and atone for the harm they caused. Other groups create safe spaces and sanctuaries to support people escaping from violence. There are also community campaigns that educate community members on the specific dynamics of violence, how to prevent it, and what community-based programs are available. As the powerfully inspiring movement to end anti-black state violence continues to grow, we must ensure that our work toward community safety receives the same attention and diligence. As a person who has survived multiple forms of violence, I know that ending state violence alone will not keep me, my family, my friends, or my community safe. I'm excited by the campaigns that organizers are pursuing to divert money away from police departments and into community services. However, 
I want us to push this work one step further. I believe we can build community safety systems that will one day operate independently from the police and government. The process of building community safety poses some critical questions to our movements. What is the world that we want? How will we define safety? How do we build the skills to address harm and violence? How do we create the trust needed for communities to rely on each other for mutual support? I'd like to offer some answers to these questions in the form of principles for building community safety strategies. By acting on these principles, everyone can take steps to decrease our reliance on police and prisons. Relationship Building From 2005 to 2010, I had the privilege of serving as the founding program coordinator of the Safe Outside the System, SOS Collective at the Audrey Lord Project. During that time, I worked alongside other queer and trans people of color living in central Brooklyn to create a campaign to address state violence and anti-LGBTQ violence without relying on the criminal legal system. I learned that the process of building community-based strategies can fundamentally reshape our ways of engaging with each other. Violence and oppression break community ties and breed fear and distrust. At its core, the work to create safety is to build meaningful, accountable relationships within our neighborhoods and communities. Within the SOS Collective, we made it a point to do outreach in the immediate area after incidents of violence. While it often felt terrifying to talk about the work of preventing and ending violence against LGBTQ people of color, we built strong allies and had life-changing conversations. Time and time again, I've known people who were saved by the relationships they built. I've witnessed people selling drugs address and intervene in transphobic violence because of relationships. I know friends who've helped their neighbors escape from violent relationships based on the connections they have built together. If and when violence occurs, the people who live closest are most likely to help us, and vice versa. Relationship building doesn't have to involve old-school door-knocking. It can be as simple as attending community events, saying hello and introducing yourself to your neighbors, or inviting your neighbors to events that you organize. It can be talking to your noisy neighbor about calling the cops. It's about the necessity of meeting the businesses and store owners in your immediate areas and on routes that you frequently use. This strategy is not without complications. For many people, particularly women, trans, and non-binary people, the act of engaging with strangers can open us up to harassment and even violence. At the same time, these challenges shouldn't prevent us from building relationships, they may merely shift the ways that we go about doing so. Additionally, we must also be cognizant of the way that class, educational privilege, and gentrification can impact relationship building. Gentrification is its own form of violence within many low-income neighborhoods. Many gentrifiers newcomers act fearfully and avoid shopping, attending events, or building relationships within their communities. Gentrifiers newcomers who are also movement leaders tend to create movements and strategies not grounded in the lived experiences of the people most impacted by violence. While I don't believe that we can separate ourselves from our privileges, we can leverage them toward justice. My educational privilege and relationships mean that I know a lot of lawyers and know about our rights during police encounters. I've made sure to share know your rights information with my neighbors, to observe the cops alongside my neighbors, and to give legal referrals. Through these moments I've strengthened relationships with my neighbors and deepened trust. Bold, Small Experiments Some of the most innovative transformative justice and community accountability projects have come from bold, small experiments. 
The safe OUD side the system collective started from the audacity of a small team of people who believed that we could prevent and intervene in violence without the police. For over a year, through weekly meetings, we discussed our experiences of violence and brainstormed responses. During these times, LGBTQ people of color were reporting physical attacks to us at least once a month, and two or three people were murdered each year in central Brooklyn. Meanwhile, the NYPD was operating like an occupying army. It was common to walk home from the subway and see officers stationed on every block or large groups of police officers walking down the street. We had no choice but to create a community safety campaign. Our campaign recruited local businesses and organizations and trained them to recognize, prevent, and intervene in violence without relying on law enforcement. At first, we had no idea how to work on this, but we researched, experimented, and talked with the business owners themselves to understand how they already addressed violence and then worked with them to ensure that their strategies included LGBTQ people of color. At the time, we did not think we were doing something innovative. We just knew we needed to build new structures for our ultimate survival. I believe that bold, small experiments rise and fall based on two fairly simple ideas, planning and perseverance. We have to be accountable enough to continue our experiments, to measure them, to hold ourselves to high standards, and to believe in them. Even within projects carried out completely by unpaid volunteers, we are using a very valuable resource, time. Often, those of us with the least money, time, or privilege put a disproportionate amount of our time into movement work. So as we continue our experiments, we need to talk about our goals, the resources we need, and how we are going to distribute those resources equitably. The crucial questions are, what can you help build? What conversations can you start to increase the safety of your community? What new structures or collaborations will you create to decrease your reliance on the criminal legal system? Perhaps you want to think about one form of violence to work on and build your knowledge from there. You could start simply by having a dinner with your friends, family, and chosen family to discuss how you all can better support each other. Or you could raise the issue of police violence and harassment at your next tenants association meeting and see if there's a way that your neighbors want to engage with each other rather than with the police. Next, you could research ways people can get emergency medical assistance outside of 911. The possibilities are endless. No matter how small they are, our experiments should aspire to center the experiences of the most marginalized folks within our communities. One of the major challenges of the movements of the 1960s and 1970s was their inability to fully hold and implement an intersectional analysis. We need to make sure that our bold experiments center the experiences of black people, indigenous people, people of color, disabled people, trans people, poor people, low-income people, migrants, and all marginalized people. Starting small gives us the opportunity to collectively imagine community safety responses without telling anyone to wait their turn. Taking time to build skills. In order to ensure safety for our communities, we need to have the necessary skills, whether those are skills in de-escalating violence, planning for safety, resolving conflicts, holding community accountability processes, or navigating consent. In each case, there is a core skill set that creates a foundation for addressing interpersonal and state violence within our communities. One of our largest failures in this arena seems to stem from arrogance. There are times we believe we have the skills to address harm simply because we have a strong political analysis or a strong desire to address harm. There's a substantial distinction between having skills and learning skills, between being experts and practicing. 
In activist and progressive communities, we're often accustomed to attending one training or reading one essay and then declaring ourselves leaders and educators on an issue. I believe the notion of instant expertise runs contrary to our liberatory values. Safety is not a product that we can package and market. Community safety is not a certification that we place on our resumes. We are invited to practice community safety skills with one of our most precious resources, our lives. In a world that is already trying to kill us with a multitude of oppressive strategies, we must be deliberate and vigilant in honoring where we each are in our journeys. I've spent the last 10 years practicing verbal de-escalation strategies to address violence on the street, at events, and at actions and protests. I am constantly learning and growing. Every incident is different, sometimes I can reduce or diffuse conflict, and other times I fail miserably. The strategies or tactics that work in one instance can go horribly wrong in others, even under similar conditions. Intervening in violence in the moment calls for using nonverbal communication to read, communicate, and negotiate safety. With each incident I am developing my instincts, by practicing I learn, despite the outcome. We must practice community safety as we would practice an instrument or a sport. By practicing in slow, measurable, and deliberate ways, we build the knowledge we need to diffuse and address conflict within our communities. We can also learn a great deal if we are open to engaging with people who have different politics than we do. I left the SOS Collective in 2010 because it was time for new leadership, and I was ready to continue learning in other settings. I took a job at a large LGBTQ anti-violence organization that wasn't involved with transformative justice or community accountability work. I did this intentionally and deliberately to see what I could learn from working outside my comfort zone. When we make judgment into one of our primary organizing strategies, we reduce the trust needed to create safety. Some of the people with the most practice working on violence are deeply embedded within the criminal legal system or other punitive structures. I've had enlightening conversations about trends in homophobic and transphobic violence with prosecutors. I've also learned about de-escalating violence from bouncers and from school counselors. I deeply wanted to learn from people who had held down more incidents than I had. This new experience expanded my knowledge and deepened my practice. I coordinated organizers in their efforts to implement advocacy and community organizing strategies in response to more than 40 murders of queer and trans people. I had the opportunity to refine my process developing and presenting community organizing options to recent survivors of violence and to surviving family members. Through this intense practice I created a process of rapid response organizing in the aftermath of violence. I was able to use all the skills I had developed while doing community safety campaigns, and I gained a deeper, more nuanced understanding of organizing around trauma. The ability to work with survivors of intimate partner violence, sexual violence, homophobic and transphobic violence, and police violence was invaluable, as was my experience working with survivors and organizers around the country. I also want to acknowledge that in these times, taking time to practice can feel like a luxury. The urgency is real. We are dying. As a black queer woman, I live in love in communities of survivors. But we will not create, implement, and achieve the measured and nuanced community safety systems we deserve through shoddy and rushed attempts. Instead, we must collectively weave our stories into strategies based on sharing what worked and what failed. Therefore, let me ask you, what has kept you alive so far? What are the lessons and themes and patterns that you can draw from? How can you practice safety? Where can you deepen your knowledge? 
and what unlikely allies can you recruit as learning partners? Spending less time judging survivors. One day, while I was working at the Audrey Lord Project, I received an email that deeply upset me. We had recently attended a march organized by a mother whose gay son had been horrifically murdered. This mother had organized the march to raise awareness about her son's murder and was also passing out flyers that asked people to report information to the police. In response, I received this message from a critic, I can't believe that you would support state-based responses. Can you tell us about how this is in line with your politics? I was incensed by the email. While I didn't believe that the state would bring justice in this case, I believe in supporting black mothers. I particularly believe in supporting black mothers who are brave, proud, and resilient enough to organize against homophobic violence in the face of devastating loss. I do not need to dictate the strategies surviving family members should use. Instead, I find ways to support them that are in line with my politics because I know that just as punishment does not transform behavior, neither does judgment. When we make judgment into one of our primary organizing strategies, we reduce the trust needed to create safety. When we say don't call the cops, we usually assume that we're talking to privileged, college-educated, upper-class, mostly white people who aren't aware of the impact that calling the police has on communities of color. We also need to push back against our societal conditioning that tells us policing and prisons make us safer. Yet when people of color and particularly black people choose to call emergency services, it is an inherent negotiation. We come from generations of state violence. Many of us have family members in prison. Most of us have either directly experienced police violence or intimately know people who have. These are not flippant decisions. Yet when we create a culture of judgment so thick that we make it impossible for people to admit that they have called emergency services or needed to, there are critical impacts. I've had many queer people of color survivors or witnesses of violence come to me for support, distraught that they called 911. I heard my neighbor screaming. I couldn't figure out how to safely intervene. Was I wrong to call 911? When people who've experienced life-threatening injuries or people witnessing violence decide to call an ambulance, we must acknowledge that we have yet to build an alternative to 911. However, if we create a culture in which people feel comfortable sharing stories about when they called emergency services but didn't want to, we actually learn about crucial needs for community safety projects. I believe that we can practice transformative justice while simultaneously reducing the harm from the state. Remembering that one of the primary goals of our work is relationship building, we must ask ourselves who wins when we shame survivors for using the available options when all such options are violent. Therefore, our work is to find ways to hold both compassion and critique while also building our awareness of when to use which tool. As a practical step I would suggest examining when and why we use judgment in our conversations with each other and whether we're seeking to educate or support. We can reframe both education and support in non-judgmental ways. For instance, education can include sharing tools for de-escalating conflict that a person could try before calling 911. We can achieve compassion without judgment when we focus on making sure that people feel heard and understood and that they do not feel isolated. Compassionately discussing calling 911 with someone can sound like this, I'm so sorry that happened. It seems like you didn't have very many options. If it's helpful, I'm happy to be someone you call on if you ever find yourself in that situation again. I'd like to offer these ideas as sparks for our collective imagination. To do this right we must start small, build to scale, and allow ourselves to learn from both our successes and our failures. 
In this piece I have discussed smaller steps toward community safety, but in order to be successful we must connect these strategies with larger liberatory movements. We must bring these ideas and conversations into our meetings, organizations, and movements. We need to take time to include them within our demands and campaign strategies to build community safety and reduce harm. Even as we act urgently to resist the state violence that is killing our communities, we must also do slow work to develop community safety and resilience. 2. Beyond Firing How do we create community-wide accountability for sexual harassment in our movements? Amanda Aguilar-Shank Being a prison abolitionist is a life path, it's a framework that we develop together through doing and learning. This story is just one of thousands that I hope can help us learn together what happens when we apply our principles to the messy and complicated worlds we live in. Sometimes people have a misconception that abolition is entirely about firing the cops and burning the prisons. It is actually about knowing that the current systems we have put in place to address harm are actually causing additional harm. It is about realizing that we have a responsibility to align the ways we relate to each other with our values, from the most intimate relationship up to larger systems like the criminal and immigration systems. Abolition is the visionary process of imagining and building the structures that we want to see replace the ones we are dismantling today. Yes, I want to see an end to the criminal and immigration systems as we know them today. I want to see the end to cops, prisons, imperialism, and militarization. I have seen how these systems harm me and my family and the families of millions in the name of safety for the few. Yet interpersonal harm is a basic fact of human reality. We can't avoid being harmed and harming others. It's just that current systems we have in place perpetuate harm and increase suffering, while claiming to do the opposite. Abolition is a hopeful vision that means each moment where harm happens is an opportunity to transform relationships and communities, build trust and safety, and grow slowly toward the beautiful people we are meant to be, in the world that we deserve. This past spring, as part of the counterattack against white supremacy and the Trump regime, and LACE, the organization where I work, was asked to co-sponsor a rally. Usually, this would have been an easy decision. Dozens of organizations with whom we collaborate had co-sponsored the rally, and the United Against Hate message was timely and unifying. But when I saw those Hispana on the list of anchor organizations, I was confronted, once again, by the experience of sexual harassment I had as a younger organizer. Once again, I was thrown back into the exhausting and frustrating process of pushing for accountability for somebody who had harmed me and others, when our movement does not yet have the tools to hold this accountability process in collective. Francisco Lopez has recently emerged as one of the core leaders of Voz Hispana Cambio Comunitario. From about 2010 until 2013, I worked as an organizer on immigrant rights issues for another organization, in close collaboration with Francisco who was then the executive director of a statewide immigrant rights coalition and was both more powerful and significantly older than me. In early 2013, Francisco began making unwanted sexual advances toward me. These advances occurred weekly over the course of several months. What started with Francisco coming on to me intensely one night, and me turning him down repeatedly, eventually became phone calls, emails, pulling me aside at events, telling me stories about his sexual history, and offering me a significant salary increase if I would work for him. When I asked him to stop over email, documenting the exchange, he attempted to diminish me publicly while continuing the advances. On one week-long project out of town, he literally heckled me as I spoke in a public forum that I had helped organize, you've talked enough already, 
get down, spoke over me in meetings, and refused to meet with me to share information I needed, then at night he would tell me almost jokingly that I should join him in his hotel room. I felt many of the things that people in my position feel, isolation, shame, anger, confusion. I felt disillusioned with our movement spaces. As a young woman, harassment was not new to me, but I felt especially pained and naive to have expected something different in the movement. I considered going into a different line of work. But I liked the work and believed in it. I just didn't want to work with Francisco. At this time, Ramon Ramirez was serving as board chair of the Immigrants' Rights Coalition. I observed Ramon's leadership style over time. Entering a room, he would greet everybody, including young women with minor leadership roles, with respect. He would ask about family. He promoted women in his organization, spoke about their accomplishments, and stepped back to make space for women in public speaking and leadership roles. He talked frequently and publicly about the importance of advancing women in LGBTQ leadership, and about his own commitment as a cisgender man to unlearning sexism and homophobia. I trusted Ramon and so, one day, mentioned Francisco's behavior to him. Ramon was livid. He told me that it wasn't the first time he had heard stories like the one I was sharing, but that nobody had wanted to come forward. I told Ramon that I was open to talking with other people who had similar experiences with Francisco. Sometime after that conversation, Ramon connected me with three other women who each had their own stories about Francisco's sexual harassment, one was a current staff member of the immigrant rights organization and two were former staffers. In our group of four, we shared our stories and recognized patterns in Francisco's behavior going back many years. My feelings of shame and self-doubt fell away as I learned about Francisco pressuring other women in similar, sometimes identical ways to what I had experienced. Collectively, we created a list of behavior we had experienced from Francisco, kissing and attempting to kiss, harassing supervised employees and student interns, offering permanent employment and a larger salary during the period in which harassment was occurring, and pressuring to share a bed or hotel room while on professional travel. Over several weeks of talks, we broke our isolation, and it began to feel both possible and necessary to come forward together about our experiences. Now, as part of a group of four women who had experienced similar behavior from Francisco, we brought written testimonies of our experiences to the board of directors of the Immigrant Rights Coalition, and, soon after, Francisco quietly resigned his position as executive director. We did not go to the press or call him out publicly. One of the women in our group was still working at the organization and bearing extreme stress as a result of the situation. We also did not want to damage the reputation of the organization, harm the immigrant and Latinx community, or provide any more fodder to white supremacist organizations who are consistently on the offensive in our state. In the end, Francisco left and rumors circulated. The Immigrants' Rights Organization held discussions about gender justice, which continue today, and hired a new executive director. Each of us in our group of four moved on with our respective work. Francisco has never contacted us again. In the end, this is a textbook success. Justice was served, and the perpetrator was removed from his position of authority. However, people do not simply disappear. Francisco has re-emerged now in Vos Hispana, which collaborates with several other immigrants' rights organizations. I continue to feel unsettled. I do not regret our actions that led toward accountability, but I continue to ask what's next? Yes, this abusive person has been cast out of an organization, but something more is required than the throwaway approach. 
I believe our wider movement community is capable of holding a process of accountability where we, 1, protect community members when the potential for harm from specific people exists and, 2, hold open a door to a transformative healing process, including people on both sides of the harm. We need to scale up accountability to the community level. Over the past several years, other impacted women, our allies, and I have used different strategies to leverage our networks and build accountability. I offer these up with hopes that they can be of use to others in similar situations and can build toward accountability processes that mirror our values. Stage 1 The first step that we took toward a community accountability process was in 2015. Francisco emerged in organizing spaces, and based on confidential conversations with several women, we were concerned that his behavior of sexual harassment may have continued. We drafted a letter, signed by the four women who came forward about our experiences, describing the behavior we had experienced. We felt vulnerable, since this was the first time our names were made public, and asked our allies to also draft a letter signed by a number of nonprofit directors and other community leaders. We circulated these open letters privately, but widely, through our networks. At the time, we felt that reaching out to the press could harm the movement as a whole, and we hoped that by one-on-one outreach we could create a critical mass of people who could act to promote women's safety. After circulating the letters, we received a number of calls from people seeking more information about Francisco. One person ran a university internship placement program and had seen some red flags but was grateful to have additional information to back up her intuition. Others were working on projects with Francisco and were unsure about whether to continue. Different people took different actions based on our letter. Some organizations stopped working with Francisco, others placed restrictions on his ability to access women one-on-one in their organization, others continued working with Francisco the same as they had before. Our intention was to provide information that could help to alert and protect future women who may have been at risk of experiencing the same thing we experienced. This was a partial success. For a time, it seemed that Francisco's work in our field lessened and that many people were taking precautions when working with him, though he did have a small core group that continued to align with him. Even though our names were now known to Francisco, none of the original four women was contacted by him or a proxy or ever received any acknowledgement or apology from Francisco. We had perhaps succeeded at limiting his reach and ability to continue the behavior, yet there was no sign that his behavior would change and no push to enter into an accountability process. Stage 2 Now in 2017, Francisco and Bose Hispana have again started to become more visible in organizing spaces and in the press. Bose Hispana has some shared turf with organizations where I work, along with one of the other women, making our jobs stressful and putting our dignity on the line as potential ally organizations side with either us or Bose Hispana. I am contacted on a regular basis by organizations seeking information, asking to know more details and asking whether and how they should collaborate with Francisco and Bose Hispana. While I deeply appreciate when people reach out, every single one of these conversations is emotionally draining and takes time away from the important work that I love. Each time, I have to share our letters, hope that they get into the right hands, and direct well-meaning people about what appropriate action to take. I am not the only one who is drained emotionally, the other women impacted, former board member allies like Ramon Ramirez, and others are also sinking energy and resources into this process. This extra load takes away from our work, work that is strategic, that is accountable to our communities, that is focused on changing the balance of power for marginalized communities and building frontline leadership. 
Our work is important, yet we find ourselves again and again engaging in a one-by-one process of educating and organizing around Francisco. I long for some larger systems of accountability and guidelines about what is acceptable in our movement spaces and what the consequences are for those who choose not to live by our core values. I long for the ability to collectively hold those systems, for accountability to be a muscle that is practiced and strengthened over time by all of us. Stage 3 When I received the invitation to co-sponsor the United Against Hate rally, I decided this time to honor my experience and the safety of other women in the movement, and to open the conversation a bit wider. Even after four years, it felt like a risk. As an AFAB cisgender woman of color I have been raised both in and out of movement spaces to put up with harassment and abuse, and to diminish myself in the face of male needs and ego. To begin to do otherwise is both liberating and frightening. I have pushed past these barriers because I believe the safety and leadership of women, trans people, and gender nonconforming people, women, and femmes is important. It is one of the key pieces that we need for our movements to be truly liberatory. Not only is it wrong for us to be harmed so constantly, but it limits our ability to grow toward our wildest visions of the future we need and deserve. With this in mind, I sent the following email to the rally organizer. One lesson I have learned as an organizer is that there are no shortcuts, and sometimes we have to slow down in order to get things right, even when the realities we are facing are urgent and terrifying. To me this is called movement building. I hope to be engaged in a long future of movement building with you. That said, Enlace will not be able to endorse the Portland Stands United Against Hate rally at this point. Vos Hispana is one of the primary hosts listed on the Facebook page. Vos Hispana is an organization led by Francisco Lopez. Several years ago, Francisco left his job as executive director of an immigrants' rights organization after multiple women brought complaints demonstrating a pattern of years of physical and verbal harassment by Francisco towards women within the organization and supporters of the organization, including staff and interns that he supervised. I was one of those women. To my knowledge Francisco has yet to be accountable to his behavior. I am not aware of any attempt by Francisco to acknowledge his actions, the impact of his actions, or make amends with the women impacted. This is concerning to myself and a number of movement leaders who have chosen not to work with him and organizations he represents. Since several years have passed, I believe this information must not be widely known, which is why I am sharing it now. If we are going to build movements capable of winning, we have to win for all of us. This means fighting white supremacy, racism, transphobia, homophobia, sexism and economic oppression in all of their forms, even and especially when it means we have to look in the mirror. It means holding ourselves and each other accountable. I hope that an accountability process will sometime be possible for Francisco, and that he may be willing to enter into that process. Until then, it is not possible for me to endorse collaboration with him and organizations he represents. If Vos Hispana were to leave the space, or if Francisco were to leave Vos Hispana, I would vote yes wholeheartedly to participating. I hope that you all will hear this information with the seriousness that it deserves, and join me in a commitment to make our movement spaces safe and free from repeats of the oppression we face each day in our daily lives. It will not be done in a day, but every day we have the opportunity to do better. The response from rally organizers was swift and appreciated. At a rally organizing meeting, my letter was read and another impacted woman offered a first-hand account of her experiences with Francisco. 
The rally coalition voted to suspend participation by Bos Hispana until an accountability process was undertaken. The rally organizers sent the following letter. It was brought to our attention that charges of sexual harassment have been leveled against the leader of your organization, Francisco. A few of the organizations endorsing this event and individuals involved in the planning are directly affected by this and ask that your group be removed as a co-sponsor due to repeated failed efforts to initiate an accountability process with Bose Hispana for Francisco. The issue of removing Bose Hispana as a co-sponsoring organization was proposed to a planning meeting which included over 40 representatives of the various endorsing organizations last night. The group voted unanimously to remove Bose Hispana as a co-sponsor due to the serious nature of the charges and to our group's commitment to the safety and rights of women in our social justice community. Many in attendance recognize the important work that Bose Hispana does in this community and express the hope of working with Bose Hispana in the future if this issue was adequately addressed. We have now gone from quietly circulating our letter, to constant one-on-one talks about Francisco Lopez, to engaging a coalition of over 40 organizations in our sector, to moving dozens of organizations to stop working with Bose Hispana until an accountability process had taken place. The rally organizers had an action plan and consulted with me and the other woman, but they did not place the burden of action on us. This is a clear example of what happens when allies step up with people impacted by harassment, and I hope other organizations will be able to take these bold steps in the future. Our organizations, coalitions, and movement spaces need both protocol and the will to take action in cases of sexual harassment and accountability. The response of the United Against Hate rally organizers in my experience was the exception, not the rule. More commonly, I am called on personally to guide and hold our movement accountable over and over. Partners call me asking whether they should work with Bose Hispana. Can they sponsor something that Bose Hispana is also sponsoring? Should they work with groups aligned with Bose Hispana? It is exhausting to carry the weight of navigating the situation. This weight is lightened when people and organizations have a shared sense of what is acceptable and what constitutes accountability. I am relieved at the ways people who harass are increasingly being publicly discussed and held accountable within the framework of the hashtag MeToo movement, which often means being removed from positions of power. We need to start recognizing that each organization does not exist in isolation and that whether or not people who are harassing are on our payroll, they are our responsibility. We need community accountability. If you are thinking, yes, I want to be part of that solution and are wondering how, here are some guidelines, if you are somebody who knows me and the situation with Francisco, please take these to heart. You can still call me, but I hope that the call will be to share the steps you are taking toward accountability rather than to ask me what to do. Start by believing survivors and allying with us. We are not the problem because we came forward with information about someone's abusive behavior. That behavior and subsequent lack of recognition or restitution are the real problems. Support those who have gone through harassment. Do the right thing, even when politics or positioning pressure you to do otherwise. Come up with a protocol in your organizations for how or if to work with people who have harassed and assaulted others in the movement. Decide not to help expand the visibility, leadership, and reach of people who are known to be harming other people and to be unaccountable. When you hear a rumor about harassment or assault, make it your job to approach the people who have committed harm or their organizations directly. Ask them what happened. Ask them what they are doing about it. Make it your job to approach people that you see working with people who have committed harm or their organizations when there is a history of harassment or assault. 
Describe your protocol to them and encourage them to develop one as well. Be public about the protocol and decisions you have made, even involving specific individuals. Be like Ramon Ramirez, particularly if you are a cis male ally. Promote and lift up the leadership of women, trans people, and gender nonconforming people, women, and femmes. Talk about your commitment to dismantling sexism and homophobia when speaking publicly. Build a culture of respect for women, trans people, gender nonconforming people, femmes, and all marginalized people. If you have access to funding, bring resources into the field of community-wide accountability and dismantling heteropatriarchy. Do not fund organizations that have unresolved allegations of harassment. When situations are unclear or messy, default to siding with those who are marginalized. Path back. What is the transformative solution? Accountability includes naming the behavior and impact of our actions, issuing an apology, and taking specific steps toward reconciliation or restitution. I believe in the ability of people to grow and change. I have been harmed and have harmed people in the past, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. None of us is perfect. Our first priority always has to be to protect people at risk of harm, but if we hope to build communities that are truly safe, we need to understand and transform the source of harm. Francisco's personal story is complex. Like my family, he lived through the brutal U.S.-backed civil war in El Salvador, experiencing imperialist political terror up close, watching his loved ones killed. Francisco has his own painful history, his own harmful patterns, his own demons to unpack, but also his own strengths. He is a powerful speaker and storyteller, he is funny, smart, and charismatic. When he has put his talents in service of his organizing and advocacy work, he is strikingly passionate and effective. On one level, he has harmed and betrayed people who trusted him. Yet on another he has demonstrated that he is willing to work to build a better world. He is a complex person, like all people, full of contradictions. I believe in a path back. I believe accountability can be a step toward greater wholeness, personally and as a movement. The project of building toward collective liberation is too important and too difficult to permanently cut people out when they make mistakes. We cannot afford it. Simply firing and excluding people who harass is a practice that mirrors the ultimately ineffective approach of the criminal justice system. Today, such an approach may be the best blunt instrument that we have to increase safety in our communities. I believe it is almost always a step in the right direction. Still, I am troubled by the lack of options we have for exercising accountability. I believe there is a path we can begin to walk toward building strong communities where sexual harassment and assault are simply not tolerated. I believe our movement is broad enough to offer a path back for those who violate our ethics and are ready to be held accountable. To develop this muscle, we need to start being more honest with ourselves and in public about the way that harm is being done and the ways that we are or aren't responding. We need to develop the capacity to struggle with each other, and we must be committed to learning this new skill movement-wide. My work as a prison abolitionist has taught me that as much as we try to throw away people, through the prison industrial complex, through deportation, through violence, people do not simply go away when it is convenient or desired. Further, when somebody is outside unaccountable, invisible, not a part of, there is very little possibility of reconciliation, transformation, or healing. Yet while I am hungry for a path back for those who do harm, it is not the burden of people harmed to continue to cover for, reach out, and hope for accountability from the people who have harmed them. 
covering for Francisco by remaining publicly silent about what he chose to do to me in 2013 has been a heavy burden that I am done carrying. Pushing for accountability, alone or in small numbers, with my own dignity at stake, has been another burden. This article calls on each of you, readers, to help me to carry this weight. Will you accept my invitation? Endnote. This piece was written and published in the fall of 2017, in the midst of the hashtag MeToo movement. People who had experienced sexual assault and harassment were sharing their experiences and personal stories, and the public mood shifted from this, sexual violence, is not acceptable. To wow, this is literally every single woman and femme's experience to we must take action. Every man who has perpetrated sexual assault must be fired and blacklisted. For me, the fervor of the mainstream hashtag MeToo moment was exciting and necessary, but it failed to connect all the dots. In social justice communities, so many of us have histories of trauma that come from generations of people forced from our land, bent and twisted by patriarchy, slavery, and genocide. If we simply fire those unable to carry these histories, those who perpetuate harmful lessons they were forced to learn, we will lose. Missing from the hashtag MeToo conversation about blacklisting was the decades-old conversation in social justice communities about how to protect people who experience harm and abuse while creating a transformative path to wholeness, for the person harmed, the person who harmed, and the community as a whole. I decided to write about my experience mostly as a way to get it out of my body, get it out of the center of a local controversy, and turn it back to my community. My article says, help me, this is complicated, hold this with me. I also wanted to find ways to insert abolitionary frameworks into a potentially transformative moment that felt like it was falling into the trap of protecting, mostly white cisgender women, victims by increasing the power and scope of the criminal, injustice system. While there is something satisfying about knowing Hollywood mogul Harry Weinstein's ankle is finally chafing under an ankle monitor the same way the ankles of immigrants and POC parolees have been for years, we also know how this story ends. Anytime the state steps in to deliver safety, it is always a white supremacist model of safety that sees our communities at the threats to be protected against. We never win when we expand the powers and resources of the state to control and punish. Four. Four, I'd like to thank all of my comrades in this work, but especially Walida Imarisha, Nathaniel Shara, and Nyanga Uka for their wise counsel, for directing me to resources, and for their writing and work in the field of transformative justice and abolition. Thank you also to Mariam Kaba, whose work deeply shapes my commitment to abolition and transformative solutions to harm. The work of transformation is collective work, and the knowledge we gather has wide and ancient origins. These talented people and many more have eased my personal journey and helped me clarify the ideas and beliefs presented in this article. It is a joy and honor to be part of this unfolding process with you all. 3. Isolation Cannot Heal Isolation one survivor's response to sexual assault. Blythe Barnow. As a survivor I'm told that prisons are there to protect me. Keep me safe. My deepest desire is supposed to be incarceration for my abuser. I'm supposed to want him to suffer, to pay for what he did. But I've never wanted that. I wanted some healing. For me and for him. But you aren't supposed to say that. You aren't supposed to say that you love the person who harmed you. You get accused of loving him more than you love yourself. Like you can't do both. You are silently asked to choose. Your heart and your history, or your healing. You are told that healing means seeing him for what he really is, a rapist. But I knew him. 
I knew how much more he was. I loved him still. He was my friend, and being his friend meant I knew the ways he had already suffered. I wanted him to get the support he needed. I wanted to make sure this never happened again. It was five years after. I had just started talking about it. I was exploring my options. But everyone said I needed to file a police report. They said it wasn't about me. It wasn't about my politics. It was about keeping other girls safe. And what I heard, and what a few people had the gall to say, was that if he raped another girl then it would be my fault. So, I went. I went to the town police station hoping nobody I knew had a parking ticket to pay that day. I took my mother with me. We were estranged, separated by our own legacy of violence, but I had nobody else to ask. We went to the window, a sheet of bulletproof glass between me and the female officer. I told her I wanted to report a rape. She was taken aback. She asked when it happened. I told her five years ago. She said she may not be able to help me. She'd have to look up the statute of limitations. A big book got thumbed through and closed. Six years, she said. Just in time. We walked through the heavy gray door to meet the detective. A man. He sat casually on the corner of the desk. He asked me why I waited so long. Asked if I wanted to file a report. I said I wanted to know about the process. He said something like, file a report, the alleged perpetrator is notified, press charges, it goes before a judge. It is unlikely to go to trial, he said. You waited too long. And if it does, you are unlikely to win. I asked if I could just put something on file. Something on record so that if another woman filed a report there would be precedent. She would be more likely to be believed. She could call on me. No, he said. Everyone has a right to know if they've been accused of a crime. He asked again if I wanted to file a report. Suggested that I should, seemingly unaware of what that would mean in this smallish Ohio town. I told him I was unsure. He gave me the form, and I stood to leave. He was a year older than me. I could not imagine him in prison. Yet another privilege of his white skin and mine. He grew up working class at best, maybe poor. It was just him, his mother, his sister. He was never as tough as the other boys. Too tender-hearted, too sensitive. It was what I loved about him. A working-class sense of loyalty and responsibility had been bred into him. You never hit a woman, you never snitch on a friend, and you always lend a hand when someone is in trouble. He held true to all these codes, another thing I loved about him. But no matter how much heavy metal he listened to, his nerdy, thin-framed version of boy never stacked up to the masculinity he saw modeled. A masculinity rooted in the lie of white supremacy and patriarchy. A lie that says white men are more capable, more deserving. The lie that white men are naturally more powerful. In his mind it was his greatest fault. He was not strong enough. He couldn't fight, and he couldn't pull his mother and sister out of poverty. No matter how much he tried. So, he joined the Air Force, determined to be a better man. A few months later he came home. He'd broken down during boot camp and got sent to the psych ward, a failure. And while he was there, he made a friend, a boy like him. A few weeks later he found that boy in a bathroom stall dead. It confirmed what he thought he already knew, that boys like him were too weak to live. He told me that story the day before he raped me. His eyes glazed over, his muscles rigid. A friend and I gave him a beer and put him to bed. She and I slept in the next room over.
I woke with a start in the middle of the night. He was standing in the doorway watching us. Numbly he said he just wanted to make sure we were still alive. I got up and walked him back to bed, crawled in with him, and held him as he cried. Because I loved him and that is what you do when a person has been shattered. The next night I had a party. He drank too much and kept trying to kiss me. It was sad, to see a friend so undone. I kissed him a few times, rejected him more. All our friends watched. When he raped me, I could see the way he was grasping for power, for some sense of control over his life. Part of me wanted to give it to him. The rest of me wanted to run. But I couldn't. I couldn't for all of the reasons that only a person raped by someone they love can understand. Shock, terror, fear, shock, shame, pity, shock, pain, embarrassment, shock, politeness, love, care, shock, disbelief, disbelief, disbelief. After leaving that police station I knew. I knew that the police, prison, a judge would never help me find what I was looking for. I would never be allowed to be a full person and neither would he. We would both be blamed and that blame could never move toward accountability. The process would be painful and neither of us would get what we deserved. So, I threw the police report out. I always wondered if he knew what he'd done. I wanted to believe he didn't. There had been nothing mean and calculating about him before. So, I resolved to write him a letter, letting him know exactly what his actions were and what they had cost me. It was meant to be a gift to him. A truth for him to confront. Something to propel him toward help. For me it was meant to be a telling. A naming. A request for accountability. I struggled with the letter for months. Never knowing exactly what to say or how to say it. Wanting to hold his humanity in mine. It felt impossible. One October night, I drove down to Kent to see an author speak. I had gotten the idea for my letter after reading one of her books. At the end of her lecture I went up to talk to her. I thanked her and told her about my planned letter. She scoffed. Don't write him a fucking letter, she said. He isn't worth it. I was shocked and tried to explain my position. She said, how many hours have you spent thinking about this letter? I paused. How many hours do you think he spent thinking about you? My breath caught. She said, don't give him any more power over you. If you want to write a letter, write one to someone who deserves your time and energy. Someone who deserves the heart you will put into it. Write his mother or his sister. We talked for an hour or more. She was right about some things and wrong about others. That night I drove home and my hands were entirely numb with fear. I had to drive with my forearms and elbows. I wrote the letters that night, and as I did, I reconciled a few things. 1. I would always believe he was worth it. 2. I deserved as much support as I wanted to give to him. And 3. It was not my job to take the lead in his healing. Letting go of that responsibility was the hardest step. Letting go of his process meant focusing on mine. It meant letting go of my own false sense of control. It meant letting go of the rationalizations that had protected me from the magnitude of harm done. It meant letting go of what protected me from the truth, he was one of my closest friends and he raped me. It was a choice, and no harm done to him in the past could excuse or explain it away. That night I wrote him a letter. I also wrote to his mother and sister. I laid out what had happened, what he was responsible for, and I also told them that soon I would be writing a letter to all our mutual friends. I told them I was going to post these letters publicly. 
I waited for a backlash that never came. I expected him angry at my front door. I expected some sort of explosion, but there was nothing. There was silence. I never heard from him again. I began to feel like I'd made a mistake. I'd given him too much credit, been too naive. He didn't care. He could discard the letter entirely, take no action. I hadn't warned anyone. I hadn't helped to prevent another assault. So, a month later I did what I had promised, I wrote a letter to all of our mutual friends and told them what he'd done. That's where I found the backlash, though never as much as expected. I lost some friends, got called some names. I stopped getting invited places. But I also got letters of support. I got thanked. I got notes from people telling me they loved me and cared about what happened to me. Though sadly too many of those notes also included disclosures of their own violence. An unexpected weight to carry. I don't regret it. It was a choice that honored my own dignity and his. But it was not perfect. It was hard and ugly and devastating. It was also powerful. I didn't get the accountability I had hoped for, but I learned. I grew. I noticed patterns and coping skills. I saw the harm caused by my own isolation and sense of responsibility. I grew up working class, the girl child of a single mother struggling with addiction. I learned early about responsibility. My life, my mother's life, depended on it. By age three I had been put into foster care after the violence of her boyfriend's hand was no longer ignorable. I learned to be silent but strong. I made myself invisible and never questioned my ability to survive alone. In the end, that was most damaging. Doing it alone. Believing it was all my responsibility. Not the assault. But the healing. The justice. The protection of nameless other girls. I leaned heavy into the skills I learned as a child, over-responsibility, independence, sharp analysis, and self-sacrifice. Which meant I never asked for the support I was so desperate for. Because what I needed, maybe more than his apology, was a community of people who could help me hold and honor all the stories that led to this one, who could help me uproot the layers of silence learned through too much violence. I needed to be asked what I wanted and what I was hoping for. I needed someone to help me craft those letters, someone to remind me that I could list expectations. I needed someone who was going to sit with me through the fallout. Someone who could read the responses people sent me and tell me to wait before reading them myself. I needed someone beside me to reflect the ways my own trauma, old and new, was informing the process. I needed someone who could show me love that was deeper and more nuanced than just hating him. The violence of poverty, white supremacy, militarism, assault, they are woven together. No court can ever pull them apart. A prison can never protect me. Isolation cannot heal isolation. 4. Excerpt from Black Queer Feminism as Praxis, Building an Organization and a Movement Janae E. Bonsu of Bipe 100 Many of us have never seen what it looks like to be truly free, but a common thread in our dreams of collective freedom is a world full of self-sustaining communities that do not rely on systems that perpetually harm us, police, jails, and prisons, to keep us safe or to hold each other accountable. Black people generally, and specifically black women, have created microcosms of such a world before. Some examples of the collective actions and struggles of queer, black women and other women of color to abolish oppressive and punitive systems while simultaneously developing models of community accountability include, but certainly are not limited to, organizations such as Ubuntu in Durham, North Carolina, 
whose members helped survivors of intimate partner violence by offering their homes as safe places to stay, providing childcare, researching legal options, and engaging in other supportive tactics, and the Safe OUD Side the System, SOS, collective of the Audrey Lord Project in Brooklyn, which created a network of safe spaces in Brooklyn for community members fleeing from violence, including local businesses in the community where employees were trained to counter homophobia and transphobia, as well as to interrupt violence without calling the police. These are but a couple of examples of community accountability processes that strive for queer black feminist principles of collective action, prioritizing safety over the criminal justice system to address gender violence. Five. Most of the community accountability processes also point to the concept of transformative justice, a process where the individual perpetrator, the abusive relationship, and the culture and power dynamics of the community are transformed rather than a process in which revenge, retribution, or punishment is enacted. Six as conflict is an inevitable element of our internal relationships, BIPE 100, Black Youth Project 100, has had to learn, and is still learning, to develop and implement approaches to making those conflicts generative and to holding our members accountable to the violence they may perpetrate. Conflict resolution and community accountability through a black queer feminist lens is sensitive to avoid replicating punitive and carceral logics, which are inherently racist, classist, homophobic, transphobic, and misogynist. Community accountability emphasizes the belief in people's ability to transform and grow and does not deem people disposable. At the same time, we do not accept the notion that any member's growth should ever be at the expense of another member's physical, mental, or emotional well-being or sense of safety, especially in cases where there are significant power imbalances between the members in conflict. But sometimes values alone are not enough to concretize justice and resolution outside of punitive systems. Most mechanisms of our community accountability and conflict resolution processes were developed in response to harm committed. The most significant precipitating events to the way that BIPE 100 handles harm in a way that is true to our black queer feminist values came in November 2015 when a woman posted an open letter to BIPE 100 accusing one of our chapter leaders at the time of sexual assault. This statement was written and posted three days after the survivor brought her concerns directly to BIPE 100 leadership. The organization had no precedent for how to handle this, but our values require us to take reports of sexual violence very seriously ensuring that we never place blame on victims-slash-survivors and that we center the wishes of those who have been harmed. The survivor agreed to a community accountability process, and although no one who was involved had any prior experience, BIPE 100 members had a relationship with a practitioner outside of the organization with years of experience facilitating community accountability processes, and that person was willing to facilitate this one. After a year-long process, the lead facilitator wrote an important takeaway about community accountability, CA, and healing. CA processes cannot erase harm. At best, they can reduce the impacts of harm and they can encourage people in their ongoing healing journeys. There is nothing soft or easy about this. CA processes test everyone and can be some of the most difficult physical and emotional work that we can undertake. Healing requires an acknowledgement that there are wounds. Healing requires parties who actually want to heal.7. This community accountability process also led to the formation of the BIPE 100 Healing and Safety Council, HSC. The HSC was created not only to build a clear process using a transformative justice framework to address harm involving a BIPE 100 member but also to provide support, training, and resources to BIPE 100 members and our contingent communities, and to bring healing into what it means to organize through a black queer feminist lens. 
In the Stay Woke, Stay Whole, Black Activist Manual, 8 The HSC grounds the importance of healing in our political work and offers a guide for harm prevention and intervention. In this sense, healing is not just reactive, but also proactive so that we are able to sustain ourselves for the long term. Organizing, especially in moments of rapid response and long nights of strategizing, can be extremely draining. The HSC explains that healing-centered organizing requires habitual self-care and collective care. It also upholds the right of people to self-determining bodies, which, historically, black people have not had, from access to restrooms and space to support for gender nonconforming bodies if slash when they get arrested in acts of civil disobedience. Generally, group or chapter self-care in a BIPE 100 space and many other black organizing spaces that I have been a part of draws from indigenous and ancestral practices, including chanting, African drumming, burning sage, building altars, offering libations, grounding, and taking time to check in with one another before getting down to business. Most meetings are arranged as talking circles in which everyone can see each other, that is, no one is at the front of the room talking at people and community agreements are made with consensus to be mindful of power dynamics and how we hold space with one another. These are but a few examples of how dealing with conflict, harm, accountability, and healing can reflect black queer feminist values. While this chapter details some elements of black queer feminism in praxis for BIPE 100, it is by no means exhaustive or perfect. My goal here was to put forth that a black queer feminist politic deepens our analysis of issues, requires centering the margins in our strategies and solutions, and provides this movement with strategic direction. I will not purport that BIPE 100 or any other anti-oppressive movement organization has it all figured out, nor will I say that our processes have not been messy. We have very real organizational limitations. Sometimes accountability processes are not resolved through restorative justice. Sometimes our people are dealing with mental health needs that cannot always be met within the organization. Sometimes our struggles are practically, structurally, strategically, and politically too real for us to know how to deal with in real time. However, it is in the missteps, in the callouts and callants, and through trial and error that our ideologies and actions become more aligned. That is why constant reflexivity of praxis is so important. We are building the plane as we fly it, and hindsight is and will always be 2020. 5. Insight. Women of Color Against Violence Community Accountability Working Document, Principles-Concerns-Strategies-Models, 2003, http://www.insightnational.org/.page/.community-accountability-working-document. 6. Christian Williams, Our Enemies in Blue, Police Power in America, Oakland, AK Press, 2015. 7. For a full summary of the community and organization accountability process for this incident, See Transforming Harm, Summary Statement Re, Community Accountability Process, March 2017, Tumblr, http colon slash slash transformharm.tumblr.com slash post slash 15817126767 slash Summary Statement Re Community Accountability. 8. I drew information presented herein from BIPE 100's Organizing Manual, Our Healing Manual, and Conversations with My Comrades. Shout out specifically to Charlene Carruthers, Asha Ransby Sporn, J. Nay Taylor, Rose Afri, Kai Green, Mari Morales Williams, and Damon Williams.